0: Marvel at the truth that we just sang. That we can be righteous, but we understand that it's not a righteousness that belongs to us or that derives from us. It's a righteousness that we have because of the perfect righteousness of the spotless Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world, who offered away into relationship with God the Father through faith in Jesus, that you took the price, that you paid the price for sin on the cross, death. That's what we deserved. And we bring nothing to the table except our own unrighteousness, our own unworthiness, our own ungodliness. We were enemies, we were hostile to you. We deserve condemnation But God, because of your great love that you sent Jesus for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes on him should be saved. So God, I pray that even in these moments, if there are anyone, if there's anyone here who does not know you as their Savior, that you would use this passage Use this message to draw them into relationship with Jesus Christ so they can experience true righteousness, imputed righteousness in spite of their total depravity. Be pleased this morning, O God. Allow your word to be clear, clear as it comes from my lips, clear as it enters into the heart. May your Holy Spirit have his way in us today accomplish your purposes may your presence be among us may your power be evident save to the uttermost oh god we pray in jesus name amen well i don't know how many of you have have uh, ever used one of these this is a a little eye mask ever ever use one of these when you're taking a nap well well this particular one is is broken um, it 's broken for a lot of reasons. W- one reason, if you were to come up and inspect this, <laughs> you would say, Why would you ever put this on your face it 's disgusting um, so it 's broken in that respect uh, it 's also broken because it 's kind of you can see in the back here it 's uh, kind of coming coming apart, but for all intents and purposes, it, it accomplishes the objective of uh, of concealing light and and allowing me to get a nap in the afternoon on Sundays. Um, that's a good day for, for naps. But I think it's broken in a, it's broken in a deeper way. It's broken in a fundamental way. It's broken because it doesn't serve a greater purpose, um, Unlike this I'm holding in my hand, see if I can find the switch. There we go. There we go. How about light? It's broken in that it conceals rather than giving light. I want you to realize this morning that everyone in this room, everyone in this world, everyone who has ever existed except for Jesus is broken fundamentally. You cannot accomplish the purpose for which you were created. You can't can't do it because you're cloth and not light. You've been called to be a light of the world. You've been called to be a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. You've been called to walk in the light as he is in the light. But you cannot do it on your own. It is not in you. You are broken fundamentally. You can't do it. But there is a way through Jesus that a transformation can begin in your life and and you can begin to to work out the purposes that God has called you to work out. And I I was thinking, and maybe some of you experienced this, um, if if the lights in your house have ever gone out and and you know that for some reason the circuit breaker has tripped in your basement and it's dark outside, you, you walk into the basement It's even darker down there. You ask your kids, hey, can you go up and and get something that's going to help me? If if they bring this, you'd be like, "Uh, I think we have missing something in the request. Or, Or maybe you don't quite understand what this is for. But if they bring you this, then you'll understand, and they understand what the real problem is. God has called you to be a light, but fundamentally you are broken. Fundamentally you're broken because you've been called to shine the light. That's what uh, we have been seeking to do through this study. We've taken a a mini break from 1 Peter, but I I really don't think it's a break because what we're doing is we're actually building on the theology of what we've been uh, exegeting over the last 20 weeks. Okay, And so... I, what I'm trying to do is trying to be courteous to you instead of spending six hours one Sunday applying this in a really practical way. How, how many of you would love to spend another six hours on Sunday to do uh, no takers? Oh, there's a couple of you. great, great. A couple of takers. We'll do that with uh, with the rest of you, but um, this is a way for us to dig deeper, a, a way for us to to do what theology and doctrine are meant to accomplish, and that is to take us from what is heady, what is scholastic, take us from knowledge and and help it to intersect life, help it to relate to who we are as believers, apply to our day-to-day. That's what God has called us to, and that's why this is important. Just for sake of review, those of you who have come Now, this is the the first time, perhaps, and we've just begun this six-part series. I want to just... um, What's the word? I wanted to say at the outset that what we're about to talk about is controversial in nature because that's what truth is meant to do. Anytime truth shines into the darkness, it will expose. It is differentiating. It, It creates sides so, truth does. It. Are you on the truth side or are you on the non truth side? There, there, there's no middle ground. I, I want you to understand the very outset of this. You can't have it both ways because, as we saw uh, two weeks ago, there are anti soul forces that are after you. They want to have you. They want to have your kids, your grandkids, your loved ones, your husband, your wife. And they want to destroy you at the foundational level so that you have no relationship with Jesus. They want to dismantle the real purpose as to why you were created. To shine the light, to worship God, to recognize and to submit yourself to His truth and to shine that truth into culture. So there's no middle ground. So for the sake of review, and in the first service, my review lasted, I think, 30 minutes. <clears throat> Maybe 40 minutes, and I think I I'll try not to do that to you. <clears throat> I want to review and help you understand why are we doing this? Why is this important? There are several reasons. First, we've been called to stand. This is so important because if you're anything like me, you want to shrink back. If you're anything like me, you want to retreat. If you're anything like me, you want to avoid conflict. I do not like confrontation. I have been sweating bullets about this study because I do not like what I have been called to do as a pastor, and that is to speak truth, because I know whether I like it or not, and and no matter how hard I try, that this is differentiating and it's going to step on toes, it's going to offend, it's going to hurt, and I don't want to hurt. But I care about you too much not to share the truth because I care more about what's coming for you, the consequences of a relationship with God, than I care about some lack of trouble-free, conflict-free interactions that I might have with you. I care more about you, to be able to share the truth with you. We have been called to stand. Let me tell you, standing is not easy. But what we're called to this, and it needs to come through a heart of love. That, that's what we're called to in Ephesians chapter 5. Let me just read this. You, you can see this here. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, it says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, A fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. We love because God loved. And by the way, I want you to understand right here at the beginning love is not love. You're going to see that all over the place. Love is not love. Love is not arbitrary, love is not open for outside definitions, it's not subject to culture. Love is not something that we speak into and we can have any way we want. Love comes one way. God is love. And love is patient. And love is kind. And love, as the KJV says, vaunteth not itself is not puffed up. means it's not arrogant. It's not boastful. It's not promoting self. It's not the kind of, thing that would seek to put myself in the front. It's always directing attention to God. That's what God's love does. It puts God on display. That's what you're made for. But notice the corollary in the same chapter. So so we're starting with love, but but notice now what love does in verses 5, excuse me, 7 to 11. Therefore, don't be partakers with them, don't have anything to do with this world don't 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 buy in to their philosophies don't be captured by their way of thinking instead love them how well for once one time you were darkness but now you are light in the lord walk as children of light what does that look like well the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true truth is love and try not to discern what is pleasing excuse me and try to discern what is pleasing to the lord take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness but love them by instead exposing them that's love love is truth love is differentiating love understands the end game Love recognizes there are consequences with being subjected to the lie, being caught up by the lie, following the lie, and, and, and thinking that there, were, there will be no implications for me to just do for a little while what the world says is okay. It, it feels good. To me right now, it's what I'm going to do. I'll ask God to forgive me, and at some point down the road, I'll get my life in line. No, that is not something that we as believers can tolerate because we want to speak truth and say, no, a relationship with God right now is much more important than your happiness. That's what like light and love does. It stands. I, I, I put this in your notes. I, I think it's so helpful. It says, where the battle rages, the loyalty of the soldier is proved and to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace to him if he flinches at that one point. Now this is written by somebody in the early 1800s. Let me try to help us update the language a bit. What it's saying is, if you speak the truth, in any place other than where the battle rages, you're just retreating. You're just finding a way. I'm going to speak the truth over here. There's no, there's no conflict over here. Uh, there's no contradiction over here. I'm not going to make anybody unhappy over here. But the battle is raging here. Be loyal to your Savior. Be loyal to your commander. Speak the truth where the battle lines have been drawn. Don't retreat, because if you do, It's disgrace to you to flinch at the point where the battle rages. That's what truth is meant to do. It's meant to shine and stand on the scripture where the battle rages. Do you love Jesus and love the truth by walking in the light? We have been called to stand. We've also been called to sound doctrine. And I'll try to speed this up. (laughs) I'm not uh, on a good trajectory here. Phew! I'm in trouble. I want you to understand there's one metric. There is one point of evaluation in your life. There's one thing that matters. It's found in 2 Timothy 2.15. It's be diligent to present yourself approved to God. A worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Meaning, it doesn't matter what your neighbor thinks about you. It doesn't matter what your coworkers think about you. It doesn't matter what your boss thinks about you. As long as your life is in harmony and approved to God, you can expect, as we saw in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, that they will speak evil about you. You're going to live an honorable life before the Gentiles, but it's not going to matter. They're going to speak evil about you. Expect it and live approved to God because that is the standard. That's the metric. You've been called a sound doctrine. And when you live in that way, you can expect stability in your life. That's the next one. You've been called to stability. You've been called to confidence. You have been called to assurance and settledness in your heart. And, and that's what happens as we settle our hearts in the word of God and we love sound doctrine. It will lead to this confidence like you're not pushed around and and, and 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 shaken like a rag doll. You 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 can you can be firm and confident. You can be a person of truth and grace. Ephesians four fourteen says this that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. That's what the world wants. The soul, anti-soul forces are against you. Philosophies of the world want to catch you up. They want to trick you and bait you. They're going to use biblical terminology. They're going to use biblical ideas and they're going to import them into their system. But don't be, don't be caught away because they have entirely different ideas about what that means. It is anti-God forces coming against your soul. Don't be duped. We've also been called to wisdom. Called to wisdom. We need discernment. God has made discernment available to us and and we can can see on the surface and differentiate between what is godly wisdom, what is spiritual wisdom, and what is not. What is earthly, carnal, demonic wisdom. It's very clear. All you have to do is look at the evidence. And and briefly, James chapter 3 verse 14 to 17. Here here, here are the indicators of demonic wisdom, satanic wisdom. Here it is. If you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Meaning, wisdom of this world is gunning to boost you up to to make you the center of your own universe it's about selfishness and jealousy and wanting what other people have and when you don't have what other people have you're going to do whatever it takes to get it they're to blame for your problems whatever those problems might be there's jealousy there's ambition there is selfishness disorder in every vile practice all the restraints are removed All the standards are jettisoned. And it's a life that pursues what it wants at the expense of anyone else around them. That's what demonic wisdom does. But spiritual wisdom in verses 17 and 18 is different. The wisdom from above is pure. It's peaceable. And I I like this word peaceable because it's not peace uh, so much as contentment, satisfaction, It's not being jealous. It's it's not wanting what other other people have. But but saying, God, you gave this to me. I'm going to celebrate and see and bless you, praise you. I'm going to be at peace in my heart and settled because I believe that you are good. You give good gifts. I'm gentle. I'm open to reason. I'm full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The pursuit of godly spiritual wisdom is running to pursue peace, not war. Running to create unity, not disunity. Now, it's not going to happen for those who are against God, right? Because they're not going to see things eye to eye with you. It's impossible for worldly people and people of this world to have any harmony, any common ground, with you as a believer there is no common ground the Apostle Paul makes that clear in 2nd Corinthians chapter 6 verses 4 to 16 he says don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers okay? we usually see that as don't marry somebody who's unsaved or don't go into business with somebody who's unsaved but, but fundamentally at, the, at, the, at the, the very core level it's talking about systems and philosophies you You have nothing in common with those who are from the world because they're oriented, and we're going to see this more as we move into Romans chapter 3, they're oriented in a a completely different way. They have different priorities. They have different values. They have different desires. You have nothing in common with them. And he says that five different ways just to make his point clear in this passage. Look at this. First, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Answer, none. None. There is no common ground. What fellowship, number two, has light with darkness? Answer, none. There is no common ground. Number three, what accord has Christ with Belial? Answer, none. There is no common ground. Four, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Answer, none. There is no common ground. Five, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Answer, none. There is no common ground. You have nothing in common with worldly, earthly, demonic, satanic philosophies. There's no intersection. There's no common ground. You share nothing with them. We are the temple of the living God. As God says, I will make my dwelling among them. I will walk among them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. I have no association, philosophically, with those who are oriented towards demonic spiritual wisdom. So where do we go? I like how Greg Bonson, by the way, here are these two books I want to recommend to you. One is called Fault Lines. I have several books up here still. I would encourage you, if you've not purchased one yet, uh, pick one up, put $15 in the offering box in the back. I would encourage that to you. Uh, my favorite book on apologetics is Always Ready by Greg Bunson. Here's what he says in relationship to this. He says, It follows from these points that the Christian who strives for neutrality in the world of thought is, number one, not neutral after all. And well, we saw that, right? Because there's only two sides. You're either against God or you're with God, right? Or, and number two, in danger of unwittingly endorsing assumptions that are hostile to his Christian faith. While imagining that his intellectual neutrality is compatible with the Christian profession, such a believer is actually operating in terms of unbelief. Wow. That's pointed. But that's the danger. So where do we start? Well, we started this study last last week in recognizing that we have to begin with the Bible. That's the starting point for everything, right? And we saw we begin with the Bible that the Word of God that is authoritative sufficient and clear. That should be a blessing and a comfort to everyone in this room. Because I have no inherent authority. I, even as a pastor, have no authority over you. But as we submit ourselves to the authority of the Scripture, the power of God is brought to bear. Thus says the Lord. That's authority. And when God speaks... We need to submit. We need to follow. We need to submit our hearts in obedience to Him. This is also a comfort because the Word of God is sufficient. And, and by the way, I, I, you know this already, but I'll just say it again. I am limited. I'm limited in my knowledge. I'm limited in my ability to even comprehend all the complex issues that are, that are at stake. I'm limited in my study. I can only study so many things. And, and there's a man, there's a plethora of, of uh, things out there to know and, and I can't possibly know it all. But as we submit ourselves to the Word, the Word of God is sufficient. Its truth can speak into these things whether we've experienced them or not. And the Word of God is clear. As we submit ourselves to the precision and clarity of the words of God, there will be help and comfort and wisdom for us. Maybe you've heard this statement, all truth is God's truth. Have you heard that before? And what is often meant by that is wherever we find a truth source, it adds to the equation so that if I find truth in mathematics or philosophy or psychology or Uh, archaeology, or you fill in the blank, any of the other sciences, I I can uh, accumulate those truths, I can stack them up, and if those truths compete with the main truth, the Bible, then obviously those truths outweigh the scripture. That is not how it works. (laughs) It's not how it works. All truth needs to be recognized through the lens of the scripture because if all truth is god's truth it can only be understood as i submit myself to the divine revelation can only be understood as i submit my heart to to see things through the lens of scripture and i understand what god is saying and and how to evaluate those truths in relationship to what god has said about himself so let's then turn we've got 15 minutes (laughs) 15 minutes to move our way through Romans chapter 3. Romans 3. The question is this How broken are we? How broken are you? How broken am I? Now, I got some really bad news for you. You are broken in totality, you are broken completely that's bad news that's the diagnosis that we're going to we're going to see here so we're going to see in Romans chapter 3 but but I want to encourage you because it's also good news it's good news to know that because you're not going to look for answers inside yourself you're not going to look for answers anywhere besides what God has said as he has diagnosed your heart and you come to terms with you bring nothing to the table now you can begin to see where are the answers? How do I fix this problem? If I, if I can't do it myself and, and God has made a way, then nothing in this world can, can help me. I must find my answers in Him. And so that's good news because there is hope. We're going to get there hopefully by the end of this time. How broken are we? Romans 3. It's on page 940 if you're using a pew Bible, by the way. We're going to start in verse 9, okay? I want you to see this in verse 9 because the the first question I I want to begin to answer in how broken are we is, is there a group that is more privileged? Is there a group that is more privileged? Is there a group that has an advantage? And Paul addresses this question in verse 9 when he says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Now, just in an isolated way, we we can say, okay, uh, I'm kind of understanding this, Paul. What you're saying is that whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, you're depraved. You are wicked. You are ungodly okay so so there's there's common ground uh, as we stand before the cross because we all come with brokenness i i, I get that but 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 you're, you're missing something right paul and so we need to go back to verses one and two and, and, and kind of pick this up and fill this this out a little bit notice chapter three verses one and two because he addresses the same question he says then what advantage has a jew different answer here notice Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, that's the answer I expected, right? I expected the answer that the Jews were set apart. The Jews were privileged. The Jews had great advantages. We know what those advantages are. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about that when he's differentiating Jews and Gentiles. He says, you weren't of the Gentiles. You weren't of the commonwealth of Israel. You had no hope. You were without hope, without God in the world. You weren't like the Jews. And that's what Paul is saying here. He says, you know, the Jews had great advantage. They had the law, right? They had the presence of God, right? They had priests and prophets, right? They had Jerusalem, and they had God's commandments, and they had God's words in their own language. They were the only ones on the planet that they got to enjoy and experience this. So they had great advantage, right? Well, in one sense, they did. But in another sense, their brokenness blew away the advantage. Their brokenness disqualified any possible advantage they could ever enjoy because they couldn't respond to the truth. They couldn't respond to priests. They couldn't respond to prophets. They couldn't respond to the presence of God. They couldn't respond to the temple. They couldn't respond to any of these things because they were broken. There was just more accountability. They had no advantage. That's important for us as we think about critical race theory. I just want to put this definition up here for you again. These are not my definitions, by the way. And I want to just move into this. We, we dipped our toes in last week. Every week I want to just kind of move in just a little bit, little bit further, okay? Little step by step so we can immerse ourselves in knowing this and be able to compare this to truth. They would say critical race theory is the view that the law and the legal institutions are inherently racist and that race itself, instead of being biologically grounded and natural, is a socially constructed concept That is used by white people to further their economic and political interests at the expense of people of color okay now on one hand we would say we, we can we can recognize that we can recognize that that systems are often put in place to benefit certain groups of individuals we know that because it is in our hearts that's what we're going to look at some more as we keep moving our way through Romans chapter 3. We're going to see that, that, that impartiality, or excuse me, partiality and prejudice and racism is ingrained in your heart. It's who you are without God. And so there's no wonder why systems and, and political structures would seek to, to do what they must to retain power. So we, we, we get that. But I think there are some really important problems we need to address and in each of these problems will, will point to a gospel issue. That they point to a God issue. Listen, what does this idea of, of thinking that some are privileged and some are not. And by the way, they would say some are oppressors, those who would take advantage or be Uh, in a place of advantage or power and and are are making systems to, to benefit them, they are the oppressor. And those who are experiencing the oppression, who are being victimized, who are being taken advantage of, they are the oppressed. There are several problems. The first is, what does this say about the sovereignty of God? What does this say about the sovereignty of God? Remember what Job said when everything was taken away? His family was taken away. His property was taken away. His livestock was taken away. His his farm was taken away. He says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because God is sovereign. And so as you anchor your heart in the sovereignty of God, you recognize that God is in control of the good and the bad. And and remember what Joseph says, he's sold into slavery. Nothing could be worse for him. He's sold out by his brothers. He has to go and become a slave in Egypt. And, And what does he say? What you intended for evil, God did what? God meant for good. Don't allow philosophies to reorient your perspective of what is truly good because good doesn't happen here. Good is meant to point you to there, to heaven, to eternity, to God, where true goodness is. So it's sometimes good for God to take away good things here so we can look to good things and want good things later. That's sovereignty, the sovereignty of God. Every good gift, every gift, perfect gift comes from above from the father of lights second question is what does this say about god's goodness and we've touched on this a little bit already but i want you to see we saw in romans chapter 8 all things work together for good to those who love him to those who are called according to his purposes god allows in his sovereignty really good things to happen even though they feel really bad Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. Third question is, what does this say about the justice of God? If God is allowing privileged things and advantaged things to happen over here, but this group has to be uh, withheld from these things, what does it say about the justice of God? Well, it says that God is not just. God is not righteous. And and so it implies that God is also not holy, right? Right? And by the way, as God allows these things to happen, God becomes the supreme oppressor. For those who are oppressed, if God is responsible, then God is the ultimate oppressor. And we must reject that. Finally, what does it say about the worthiness of God? The worthiness, the value the wonder of who God is. I, I love how the Apostle Paul puts this in Philippians chapter three, verse eight. He says, "Indeed, I count everything loss. Why? <laughs> because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whom I I uh, for for His sake I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ. He is worthy." We're looking to Him. We don't care about the things of this life. We recognize in His sovereignty, He takes things away, but it's all in His goodness so that He can point us to the wonder and the value of His worthiness, supreme value over everything you could have in this life. Make no mistake, the gospel is being attacked at its foundation. We must recognize, we must stand, we must be able to understand the truth submit ourselves to the authority of the scripture. And now in five minutes, I want to finish. So we're just going to fill these in so you can see that for yourself. I want you to see how, how total your brokenness is. How, how total is it? How, how broken are you? How broken am I? Well, I, here, here, here's how it goes. Romans 3 verse 10. Here's what he says. As it is written none is righteous no not one how would you feel in that first phrase what's that all or everyone is broken everyone in this room is broken without jesus every one of your neighbors is broken without jesus every one of the people in your family are broken without jesus every person in your workplace is broken without jesus Every person who's in political, governmental systems is broken without Jesus. Every person who's ever walked on the face of this earth, with the exception of Jesus Christ, is broken. You're broken, fundamentally, at the deepest level. It's a brokenness that means that you hate God, and you can't do anything in and of yourself to merit His favor. You, you can't do anything that the guy would say, ooh, wow, that's, that's, that's pretty good. No, there is none righteous. Not a moment of your life apart from Christ. You have done anything righteous. It's always been self-oriented. You are broken fundamentally at the deepest level. Verse 11, what does it say? No one understands, no one seeks for God. We know that everyone is broken, but, but now he begins to press in to the specifics of your brokenness. So, so, so how would you fill this, this blank in? What, what is broken about you? Your, your thinking, your understanding is broken. You, you can't think godly thoughts. You, you can't pursue uh, spiritual wisdom. You can only submit yourself to the slavery of unrighteousness and the slavery of the adversary. You can only think his thoughts after him. He says, uh, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, you run after the course of this world. You are children of wrath, just like the rest of us. Apart from from Christ, you you can't think or process spiritual things because you're broken. Your your thinking is broken. In verses verse 12, we find this, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So your, your thinking is broken. Here your actions are broken. Your actions are broken. You, you can't do good, not even one. One. Isaiah will amplify this thought in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. He says, We are all like an unclean thing. All our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Meaning, even in your best attempts, even on your best day, even in your best moment, your righteousness equals Zippo. It equals hostility towards God, ungodliness. In your greatest moments, you are ungodly. You are wicked. You are hostile to God. You are an enemy of him because everything that you do is self-oriented. You're making yourself the center of your own universe. You only care about the accolades of others. You only care about patting yourself on the back. You only care about what other people think. You only care about how how this makes you happy, whatever it is. It's self-oriented instead of God-oriented. Even in your best day, apart from Christ, it's, your, your iniquity has taken you away. Verses 13 and 14, expand on this, and they say, Your throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Your speech is also broken. Your thinking, your actions, your speech, totality of depravity, corruption of your life. I like how James puts this in James chapter 3, verse 2, 6. Here he it goes. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. How many perfect people do we have in this room? Don't dare raise your hand. (laughs) Because the point of that is, no one's perfect. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Your tongue is an instrument of Satan. Your tongue lights up this world in destruction. It is something we struggle with even as believers. So that in verse 9 it says, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessings and cursing. My brother, these things ought not to be. How is this possible? Well, it's possible because you are broken in how you speak. Verses 15 and 17. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. Your desires are broken. You want all the wrong things. And you'll do whatever it takes to have them it remove the constraints and that's what we're going to talk about more next week. Once the restraints are removed, once the laws are in place, once the accountability is gone, if no one sees you and there's not going to be any accountability or any punishment, you will do whatever it takes to get what you want. Many examples for that, but we don't have time. Finally, verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Your perspective is broken. For you, there's no standard. For you, there is no God. There is no fear of God because there's no belief in the existence of God. Now, you you might give him uh, some sort of lip service, but he's not the God of the Bible, he's the God of your own making. He's the God who celebrates the way you live. He commends you. He pats you on the back. He gives you a high five. That's not the kind of God we're talking about in the Bible. That kind of God, the kind of God we have in the Bible is the kind of God who has an unwavering standard, standard that applies to all of us who breathe. And if we don't fear God, we have a broken perspective. But there is hope. And I want to just get there briefly. We have just a couple... Give me a couple more minutes, okay? So what, does, what do you deserve? What does that kind of person deserve? The kind of person we just described. Everyone is broken. Your thinking is broken. Your heart is broken. Your desires are broken. Your perspective is broken. Your actions are broken. Everything about you is broken. And is actually not just broken, but is actually working its way to oppose God. That's, that's, that's who you are. So what do you deserve? You deserve... Judgment, right? And that's where he goes next in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. You and I are accountable to God. The the law has been written down, we have been made aware of that law, and we are accountable. We are condemned. Verse 24, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We are fundamentally broken. We are fundamentally set apart from God. We deserve condemnation. We deserve judgment. We deserve separation from God forever. But now the hope. The diagnosis has been set. The bad news has been given, but there's good news to come. And we find that here in the next few verses. That that we have been offered something, we find, in verses 23 to 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, here it is, are justified. That is, declared righteous. We sang about that at the beginning uh, of our our service. And are justified, how? How? By His grace, it's undeserved. You and I do not deserve the kindness of God for a moment. It comes through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, the precious blood, the buying, the purchase blood, the the precious blood, life blood of Jesus shed for you, the punishment for sin, death on a cross. Verse 25, whom God put forward, As a propitiation, an appeasement by his blood to be received, here it is, by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. God God didn't just overlook sins. God sent Jesus to pay for sins. Because a just and holy God cannot just say, ah, it doesn't matter. No, he had to allow his wrath to pour out on his son. His son was crushed for your sin and for my sin so that by faith, Jesus' righteousness could be placed on you, accredited to your account. Do you know Jesus? Have you entered into relationship with Jesus? Do you, have you come to terms with the hopelessness of your situation on your own? That, that there is no advantage for you even if you've grown up In America, even if you've come to Maranatha Church, even if you have come and grown up in a Christian family, there is no advantage for you because you are still under sin. You are still broken. You need Jesus. You need to come to Him in faith. Have you done that? Let me pray. Oh God, I pray that you would help us to come to terms with our brokenness and we would see that as a sovereign, Loving, holy, just, merciful God, you have made a way in Jesus. That He is the way, the truth, and the life, that no man comes to the Father except through Him. In this moment, even now, I pray that your Holy Spirit would have His way in the hearts of those you're drawing to yourself. May they come to no salvation, no forgiveness in no relationship that comes through faith in Christ. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.